Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, hey, how's it going? And if you are a returning subscriber, hey, how's it going? Hope you're having an amazing day. See what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button. Join us each week as we talk to thought leaders in the ethics and compliance and human resource space. I am here with the man who needs no introduction, the godfather of compliance himself, Joe Murphy. Joe, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Uh, great, man. I've been real excited to get you on. Um, you came on my radar from uh, Roy Snell, who's saying your, your praises for such a long time. We connected, I think, over the summer, and we really had a, a really awesome conversation. And I've really learned a lot from you. Uh, you've challenged me on some things uh, in a good way. And I feel like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to get you on to, you know, give you a platform to share some more of your knowledge, wisdom, insights, etc., with our listener. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm very happy to have the opportunity to talk with you and uh, exchange ideas. I also, I always learn any discussion I have with people, there's always new insights, new perspectives. Yeah, um, same here. You know, there's always something that we can learn from folks. And, uh, you know, for someone as thoughtful as you, you know, I love your writing. I love, uh, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn. I mean, you're like so prolific with the amount of, um, you know, articles and things you put out. Have you always been that way? Have you always had kind of, hey, I have something to say and you, you, you need an outlet for, for that? And if not, when did that sort of turn on for you? I think professionally, I've always been that way. And particularly in the compliance and ethics field, I feel very strongly about this. And I think there are a lot of interesting ideas and a lot of interesting approaches. And when you consider that compliance is really about how you manage people, there are mm -hmm. many things to think about and many ideas around in that area. So I've always enjoyed these discussions and I love working with ideas. I love hearing new ideas. Um, and so I've been doing that as long as I've been practicing. So from your perspective, um, you know, they don't call you the godfather of compliance for nothing. So from your perspective, what is the story of compliance? I want to say first, when Roy made that reference, I did check with him to be sure he didn't mean that I look like an underworld boss. Um, yeah, you're I leaving think... horse heads in people's beds or something. Exactly. Uh, or make people a compliance program they can't refuse. <laughs> but that, you may want to do that, but go on. Yeah. And, and so for me, the basics in this field, the fundamental point is you're dealing with people and you're dealing the, with the risk that people will do something wrong. That's a broad range of possibilities. But it means the fundamental point is you're managing people in an organization. And anyone who understands organizations knows that people act differently in organizations. Things that an individual might not do, they might well do in the organizational context. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people make the mistake of talking about this as corporate, as in the only people in organizations who ever do anything wrong are people who work in for-profit corporations. Mm. And that's nonsense. If you look at the record of different types of organizations, you find wrongdoing in all types of organizations because you find group think and group conduct. And so you can find it in child abuse in the Catholic church. 
in the uh, varsity blues scandal in universities, you find things in governments, all types of organizations, including companies. So when you first got into this game, compliance kind of didn't exist as a thing, right? I mean, you've seen this kind of sprout up through the soil and now it's kind of growing into this adolescent tree. What has that path been like for you at, as you were kind of at the forefront of this thing from the start? Well, that's a tremendous question because I didn't look around and decide I was going to join the field of compliance and ethics. There was no field. I started in 76 as an in-house antitrust lawyer. And one of the first things I worked on was antitrust compliance, which then was training people, making sure there were standards, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. In my internal practice, though, I also got involved in some regulatory matters. I got involved in some environmental model matters. I was practicing when the Farm Corrupt Practices Act came out, and I was doing compliance work there. And what I discovered was that people who do compliance work had more in common than lawyers did with other lawyers who were members of the bar, but had entirely different practices. And so, Got for it. example, one of my um, one of my friends in practice was an estates lawyer. I had him do my will. He and I had very little in common in terms of what we did from day to day. But when I looked at FCPA compliance or environmental compliance, what struck me was that there was a lot of commonality. We were doing the same things. It just never occurred to us that we had a common connection. Interesting. And, so what, and what I saw was, going back to my point about group behavior in, in organizations, that within, within an organization, you could have a group, what we called a constituency, that was devoted to compliance and ethics that could act as an internal check on what the organization was doing. And it didn't matter whether you were an antitrust lawyer, a, an EEOC lawyer, because we dealt with that also, environmental compliance, you were doing the same things. You were setting standards, you were training people, you were checking on people, you were working with people to make sure they did the right thing. So when you started to see this connection and this overlap, I mean, that was kind of, uh, you know, the first sort of sprouts up through through the soil as this progressed to now there's industry, you know, there's websites and there's, you know, everybody has a compliance officer. Um, this is this is a career now, you know, as this sort of formed out of the primordial soup of uh, regulations and whatever, what were those first kind of steps as this thing started to kind of coagulate, so to speak? Well, let me give a little bit of background of how we got from there to here. In the late 80s, I had made contact with my college mentor, Professor Jay Sigler. He was a, an expert in political science that had been my undergraduate area. And so I met with him, and I talked about my observations, and what I was seeing. And as we went through the discussion, I remember over lunch, he looked at me and said, Joe, it's time we write a book together. And so in 1988, we published Interactive Corporate Compliance, which was the first book explaining this and looking at compliance as a separate subject area. And so that was really part of how the transition came about is pulling this together and then uh, publishing the book. And by the way, here's a hint for anyone who wants to publish a book, find a co-author who's already published a whole bunch of them. Yeah, and write their coattails. 
Right, when he called the publisher, the only question they asked him is, when can you get it to us? See, I mean, so much easier, right? He already had the end. He already kind of knew some of the plays to run and so forth. That, uh, that probably helped you accelerate toward the end product a lot quicker. So interactive corporate compliance. Talk to me about that book. And, you know, obviously this is a well-known book. This was sort of the seminal sort of thing that kicked this thing off, at least from my perspective. Um, talk to me about writing that book and what, what realizations you kind of had during writing while writing it that you, you know, are still kind of pillars of what we're living in today. Well, the fundamental, there were a couple of fundamental points. One was compliance within a company was not simply sending stuff out and hoping for the best. It had to be interactive. That is, you had to interact with your people. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was not about just sending stuff up. It was about how you manage people. And so, for example, in the book, mm -hmm. we talked about the use of incentives. This is 1988. We we're saying incentives were critical for compliance. It's now 2021 and there's still people who do not understand that or get it. But we were basically saying this is about how you manage people. There was another interactive element of this and that was what would inspire companies to do this? What would drive companies to do that? And our thesis was that it would always take government involvement to drive that. Mm -hmm. And that means government recognition of compliance programs or really recognizing there's a difference between a company that doesn't care, does what it wants, makes no effort on the one hand, and a company that does care and uses diligent compliance methods to try to prevent misconduct. And part of what we were saying, what I've been saying for decades now, is if the government wants companies to do rigorous, effective, credible compliance programs, it rests with the government to get that message out. Vis-a-vis -vis incentives, essentially. Uh, right, exactly. Incentives, or in another, looking at this in another plane, it's recognizing that organizations are not giant human beings. They're complex, mm. they're groups of people, and you should distinguish the organizations that really try to prevent misconduct from those that don't. So it's not just a matter of incentives. In a sense, it's a matter of fairness. It's not fair to treat one company that doesn't care and deliberately breaks the rules versus another company that's made diligent efforts, but among its 100,000 employees, 20 of them did something wrong. So it's recognizing there's a real distinction there. Yeah, there's a distinction that's kind of rooted in the intent of the organization. And to your point, the... I don't know, the authenticity with which they're applying these sort of compliance controls or whatever. Where have you seen the government like really fall short on that front? Like it feels like this, there's a lot of opportunity in what you're talking about. And it doesn't feel like what you're talking about is like really in place to kind of the fullest degree possible, you know? Right. There are elements there, but there's a long way to go. And in fact, a few years ago, I did a a law review article for the Rutgers University Law Review. And I really went into this in depth. I went into the things the government is not doing. And I went into the types of flaws that I see in compliance programs. Okay. And not only is the problem that some government agencies are not doing enough, but a point that almost no one recognizes is that there are part of the legal, parts of the legal system that actively undercut compliance efforts. Now, I'll give you one example of where the government's gone wrong. 
there's a sense that, gee, if voluntary compliance programs are good, mandatory compliance programs would be even better. This is an enormous logical fallacy. And what you see when the government mandates and says, okay, we have the answer. We know exactly how much harassment training you need. You need two right. hours every two years. What happens is you suppress innovation and you get mm. exactly two hours, no more often than once every two years. And the lawyers are there writing it to make sure it reflects the law and that it's only two hours long. Yeah, it's like you solve the equation the wrong way or something. Exactly. It, the analogy I use is you say to a thirsty person, look, there's a whole ocean there full of water. Just dive in and drink as much as you want. Sure. It seems like a good idea, but it doesn't work. And what we see in, harass in the harassment area in particular is just a complete misunderstanding of what's required for an effective compliance program. So you, having do, you have people doing things that are inspired by lawyers, but make no sense. We've had years and years of pretty bad harassment training, years and years of policies. And when we've had the recent upsurge in interest in harassment, the government's approach is, well, let's do more of it. It didn't work. Yeah, but let's do more anyway. Right. And nobody's talking about using incentives. Nobody's talking about using all the tools that we've learned to use in the compliance and ethics area. Yeah, or just all the things that are available to us now, right? Like there's so many different technologies, there's so many sort of media options. I mean, at the end of the day, to your point, you're trying to convey some kind of, uh, you know, you're trying to convey some information from this, this outcome that we want to avoid vis-a-vis -vis through some policies or trainings, whatever, into the brains of folks to the point where it actually influences their behavior. It's not necessarily, okay, I mean, you can get kind of stupid with this and say, all right, it needs to be two hours. It needs to be 40 slides. And you know what I'm saying? Like the more prescriptive yeah. to your point, the more prescriptive it gets, the more sort of limited uh, the solution set is and the less sort of effective it tends to be, it seems. And I'll add a point people, particularly some scholars tend to disparage the sentencing guidelines. And it's almost as if they never bothered to read them. They just said, well, it's from a bunch of lawyers, so it can't be good. But the sentencing guidelines in just a couple words has one of the most brilliant provisions. And that is it requires you evaluate what's working. Nowhere in the EEO area, nowhere in the harassment area, is there any standard I have ever seen that calls for you to evaluate what you're doing? What kind of crazy management approach is that? Who would do something as a manager without checking to see whether it worked? But none of that is involved in harassment training. You sit through it. You might listen. You might spend your entire time on this yeah. to absorb absolutely nothing. No measurement. No measurement. No effort to find out whether it worked because these mandatory government standards don't ask that. So I mean, think. I mean, think about that. Why? I mean, why do you think that is? I mean, presumably it's not a bunch of adults writing this. These are people who see a problem. They're probably you know smart people in the room. Why is this? I don't know, seemingly critical element, you know, left out of, of what we're talking about. It's a nice bridge to another point because they're not compliance and ethics experts. Mm. They're, maybe they're lawyers, maybe they're HR experts. They're not compliance and ethics experts. If you're, if you're an expert in this area, you know the sentencing guideline standards, you know that evaluation of whether something works is critical. And in other areas, like 
dealt, those dealt with by the Department of Justice Criminal Division, they make it clear, you're supposed to be evaluating, is this stuff working? Mm -hmm. So we've got the wrong people making the decisions in that area. Their stovepipe, so people who do harassment training, don't talk to people who do mm -hmm. FCA training, have no idea what the criminal division has said on compliance programs. They're like this, well, it's yeah. harassment. Well, the training didn't work. Well, then let's do more. Well, that didn't work. Well, then let's do even double more. Double it, yeah. Keep doubling yeah, double. it. <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't work, do twice as much. <laughs> so, um, you know, I want to get back to uh, this book, Interactive Corporate Compliance, because so many of the tenants in it, so many of the, um, you know, I mean, think about it, interactive, right? You're, you need to interact with the people. You need to influence their actions vis-a-vis -vis incentives, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, uh, effective communication, whatever, there's this people element inherent to it. And as I've gotten into this game, what I've noticed is that a lot of folks are, you know, if that's on one end of the spectrum, let's, let's call that sort of actualized compliance or like really effective compliance as outlined in this book that you wrote uh, back in the day. What I see is a lot of the sort of more stove, whatever you call it, stovepipe style uh, compliance being overlaid onto organizations where it's just a bunch of activities. We have a bunch of, um, we have a bunch of tools in place or we have a bunch of technologies in place and we're swimming or drowning in these lakes of data. And it's almost like we're losing sight of the fact that at the end of the day, we need to be influencing the behavior of human beings that voluntarily show up at a place of business every sing single day to pursue some kind of collective mission. Yeah, and you know, Nick, it also goes to the point people make about, um, about culture in organizations. And I used to teach a class for SCCE on how you measure um, whether your program's working. Mm -hmm. And I used to say, when it came to culture, there's a lot of mysticism about it, but it's really not that difficult. And I talked about two technical tools for measuring culture. And I told people one was called lunch and one was called beer. You take workers out to lunch, you don't have beer during work hours, and you talk with them. Mm -hmm. You can find out what's working and what's going on just by talking to people. And that's the point about quite a bit of this, about the, the training techniques, the methods that are used, is talking with people and getting feedback. Now, there's a lot of emphasis today on data analytics. And I believe in that. I believe data can give you some good information, can give you some good background. Um, you don't want to get caught in data hubris, which is thinking mm. that just a bunch of numbers will tell you everything you need to know. Numbers can tell you where you may have a problem and where you should look further, but only talking with people, the human element will get you to where you need to be and to know what's going on in the organization, what's working, what isn't. And my experience with people, and Roy writes about, writes about this in his um, accidental compliance professional book. Mm -hmm. People will not necessarily call you up and volunteer things, but if you talk to them and you listen to them, they'll tell you what's on their mind. It's nobody's asked them, but if you ask them, they'll tell you, you can find out a lot that way. I mean, it's so silly uh, in a sense that like the silver bullet in this whole game is just bringing more humanity into the conversation and not just sort of diagnosing the patient by merely looking at their chart, but actually interacting with the patient and seeing you know, is this chart, the data, reflective of, you know, what's actually going on with the patients? And you can have an actual diet diagnosis that probably has a higher likelihood of being successful. It's just a bizarre, it's bizarre that that's not just so obvious. 
it's bizarre that we're even talking about that, given, again, to your point, the data is right at our fingertips, and maybe it's that hubris thing you're talking about. But this last mile, so to speak, is sort of right there at our fingertips. And it's just, it's surprising to me that, you know, still 20, 30 years into this game, we're still continuing to have this conversation of this missing, uh, you know, this missing piece of the puzzle. Well, I think there are a lot of pieces to this and no one should ever say it's simple. It is complicated. Mm -hmm. And I want to introduce another piece. And I think there's also tends to be a mistake of thinking of people in a kind of homogenous way. And people do this in the behavioral area. They'll say, well, there's studies that indicate X. Um, and the X is the average. But if you have a large organization, you have 10,000 people, you have to assume that anywhere from one to 5% of those people are sociopaths. That is people who do not have a conscience. They don't have a sense of right and wrong. And all the nice stuff that reaches 60% of the people or 80% of the people or 95% of the people, all that's good. But you also need a harder edge because you have people who are not going to be influenced by that. And so when we're dealing with compliance and ethics, one of the reasons it's complicated is you do not want to offend the 95, 98, 99% of people who are going to do the right thing, but you're responsible for 100% of them. So you also need to have the controls and you need to have the harder edge. So you also need to check on what people are doing. And I once heard a statement that I thought was funny. It said out of any group of eight people, uh, one person will always do the right thing. One person will always do the, the wrong thing. And the other six wait to see who gets rewarded and who gets punished. Interesting. Well, that's an exaggeration, but people are along a spectrum. There are actually people who never on their worst day would do anything wrong. And I'm sure someday I'll actually meet one of those people. And there are people on the other end who, if you're not watching them, they'll steal everything that's available. And then there's a whole range of people along that. And so you're working to influence them. You're using kind of softer skills to move them in the right direction. But you also have the hard edge because you got to deal with you got to deal with everybody, including the ones who um, they might be brilliant, which is one of the problems here. They might be really sharp minds, but they may have no moral sense whatsoever. And so we as compliance managers need to address that whole spectrum of people. How do you, where do you need controls? Where can, where can you do things that'll have the most influence on the general population, but also deal with the ones who are more problematic? And so there are a lot of elements to this. You know, from reading things I write and hearing me talk, um, that I can talk forever about this. And I'll add one other point that I think is extremely important and extremely underestimated, the impact and risk of retaliation. Mm. And I've come around to seeing that as such a pervasive and dangerous area that I generally recommend to people now, when you do your risk assessment and you have environment and antitrust and corruption, include retaliation because it's gonna happen. Well, um... ECI put out this, this report that I've just been like harping on all year. And the report showed that um, this is up from 44% three years ago. 79% uh, of people who actually spoke up in their organization experienced some form of retaliation, direct or indirect. That's almost, I mean, it's essentially four out of five people. So I would challenge anyone to say, hey, I don't have a retaliation problem in my organization because as I have, as I kind of talk about this data point with people, I end up asking them, well, okay, cut that, you know, 
cut that in, in a fifth, cut that in a, in, in a quarter. If it's still 20%, if it's still one out of five people, is that, is that a sufficient, like, is that a, is that a, a palatable level of retaliation? What's a, you know, how much retaliation do you want in your organization? And of course they all, all say zero, right? Everybody wants no retaliation. They want people to feel included and they want people to be these human sensors and raise their hand and to be able to kind of start to crowdsource risk management and all, and all those positive externalities that come along with somebody who feels like they're part of this thing and they can raise their hand when something is not working. But if people aren't attacking this, this retaliation thing, or they're not seeing this as a massive opportunity to uh, you know, hit head on, they're leaving so much risk on the table, so to speak, that can really start to be extinguished if you can actualize people and make them feel, you know, or sort, sort of start to evaporate, evaporate away some of the fear that's, that's inevitably in our organizations. I think that's right. And one of the problems here is people don't recognize retaliation when it's right in their face. Yeah. You know, there's a saying, I think it's a Japanese saying that the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. Mm -hmm. And I think like someone who's in an office where people generally come in a little bit late and it's no big deal. After they speak up, all of a sudden management notices that they come in late. Did management intend to retaliate? No, they could probably say they didn't. Did they? Absolutely. They picked out that one person and held them accountable for something everybody else was doing. And I think that's a problem. Like, People may say, oh, well, this person's a troublemaker. Let's see if we can get them an exit package so they can leave. They don't recognize that's retaliation, but it is. Yeah. So I, I, think, I think we need to pay a lot more attention to that risk. And I've raised, a, I've raised a suggestion for people just to get them to think about this. And I've told them, if you really want to make the impression that you have nothing against people who speak up, that you're opposed to retaliation and you honor whistleblowers, then do something nobody does. Hire one. Yeah. And it will be the easiest hire you ever made because there's tons of talent out there and nobody will hire them. So if you want to send a message to your people that you're serious, go ahead, do that. You'll have no trouble finding them. It's a real paradox for me, um, this whole whistleblower thing. And well, before I get into that, because we'll we'll go off on that. I mean, your point about the retaliation, I think it's important to recognize that retaliation is really in the eye of the beholder, right? And so understanding that and understanding that there are these unintended consequences with respect to how we react and how we respond to people speaking up, we just need, need to be sort of thoughtful and intentional about that because we don't want to send a mixed message or we don't want to send the wrong message that could end up, you know, curtailing, you know, more more of this crowdsourcing of uh, risk management, which I think is a massive opportunity. But over back to this, um, this paradox, this whistleblower paradox, I really, until I got into this game, I didn't realize that, that this was such a massive issue. And it actually is a huge issue. But the most interesting part of it is, to me, uh, and interesting might be the wrong word, but you know, typically, I think people who, who are quote unquote whistleblowers, they test extremely high on the personality aspect of conscientiousness. This is one, along with intelligence, of uh, the most sort of scientifically predictable factors that lead to success. So, you know, some of the best people on our team are the high conscientious, high intelligent people. You know, whistleblowers tend to be both of those. It's just bizarre that, you know, it's almost like they're hyper conscientious, like they, they, they can't bear to be around the malfeasance and they have to say something about it. That takes a certain allegiance to uh, the company mission, and that takes an allegiance 
and a trust in, you know, hey, I thought the purpose that we have on our wall and the mission statement that we have in these rules that like we're supposed to be adhering to, my deed needs to follow my word. That's the picture of like a phenomenal teammate, a phenomenal, you know, employee. And yet they get kind of branded with this, you know, scarlet letter. They can't find a job. They're, they're kind of floating in the ether of, uh, of the economy. And, you know, some of our greatest hires have been people, to your point, that were whistleblowers in other organizations. What do you think's at the root of all of that? Well, I think there, someone who speaks up is going to be perceived in the way I, I mentioned on that, that uh, Japanese thing as, um, as the opposite, as not being team players, even though they are. And to your point, if you talk with people in government who deal with whistleblowers, most of the time before they go to the government, they raise the point in-house and they get hammered. Now, I do want to emphasize there's a lot of reports and calls in-house that have good results where there is no retaliation. If you look at helpline call numbers, you'll see a big company might have hundreds, thousands of calls. But in the serious case, cases, the record is really bad of people being retaliated against. And I think part of what it calls for is a focused management effort to deal with this, recognizing that simply swearing a mighty oath in your code of conduct that you do not tolerate retaliation is pretty close to worthless. You have to actually do something. And interestingly, and this is an area where most government guidelines just fall totally flat. If you look at the criminal division's guidelines on compliance programs, all it says about retaliation is don't. It's useless. Uh, the, there's very few substantive guides. The EEOC is maybe the best because they give you some specific things to do. But I would say to government agencies that are issuing guidance, particularly detailed guidance on compliance programs, you need to focus on retaliation too. Because those who speak up are the best defense against wrongdoing. They see it, they speak up, they should be recognized. They should be um, listened to. And the recognition is critical. I do not believe in bounty systems, by the way. I don't believe companies should be paying people for speaking up. Really? But they sure should recognize them. And I would say somebody who speaks up ought to move right up the list on those who are considered for promotion. So that's interesting. So I wanted to ask you about kind of how, how we can incorporate incentives because there are sort of the positive incentives and there's the negative or the anti-incentives, which kind of you know, silence the retaliation, or sorry, that silence the the, uh, the whistleblowing or whatever you want to call it. Um, but you don't think that people should be rewarded monetarily, it sounds like, for speaking up to the same extent that, you know, SEC whistleblowers uh, get a reward. Why that division between this sort of, you know, government whistleblowing program and that incentive structure and one that could be internal into an organization where the incentive or the payout is in the form of, hey, I'm listening to you or, hey, you're fast tracking for promotion. What's that division in your mind? Well, the government's in a different position. After all, the government system comes into play when the internal system has failed. Mm -hmm. But my experience with whistleblowers, and I think most people agree with this, they don't raise the issue for money. They raise it because they believe it's the right thing to do. Right. If you offer money, you change that calculus. It now becomes a commercial transaction and likely you will get fewer calls because mm -hmm. anyone with any sense in a corporation, at least in the current environment is gonna say, well, wait, 
if I report this, they might give me a thousand bucks, but I might get fired. No, I'm not going to report. And you may have heard the story of the, um, the child care place in Israel that had a problem with parents not coming to pick their children up on time. And, um, and so finally they decided, okay, we're going to charge people for coming late to get their children. And they had a significant increase in the number of parents coming late because they changed a moral decision into a financial decision. And people decided, yeah, the extra money I'm going to pay is better than leaving work when my boss wants to talk with me. So I'll just pay. You don't want to convert a moral decision into a financial one. And I think the better recognition in a case like that is showing the person that you acted on what they said, um, that type of recognition. And one big mistake I see in people who think about the whole issue of incentives is they assume incentives are just cash. Yeah, but they're not. There are many ways to recognize and reward people. So treating somebody like a hero, and I would definitely put people who speak up on the list of folks to be promoted because you know you have a person with character, with right. the strength of their convictions. These are characteristics of leadership. The person who doesn't say anything when they see something wrong, they should be going down on the list. The person who speaks up should go up. So I'm a big believer in incentives and recognition, but you have to recognize there's a range of incentives and cash has its place. I'm like most people, I'm, I'm very fond of cash, but it's not the only incentive. And in some things like speaking up, it's not, it's not even a good incentive for people. So interesting. So where, where's the breakdown occur? Because as someone running a business, if you are running a business, irrespective of you know, your experience in the compliance uh, space and your sort of intimacy with this broad sort of whistleblower, you know, issue, I would presume that, you know, as a smart businessman, you would be looking for people that are going to carry your mission forward, people that you could trust that could sort of, you know, kind of be the representation of you and make sure that, you know, the trains run on time or, you know, whatever analogy you want to lose, use. So presumably that's the sort of idea at the top for the archetype of the right kind of people to add to the team. And yet these folks can't seem to find footholds after they've, uh, you know, you know, blown the whistle. And the person that, I mean, there's a hundred people that come to mind. Um, we talked to Sharon Watkins, who kind of took down Enron and she was like uh, an accidental whistleblower. In spite of that, she was like a pariah for 20 years. So it's just a very bizarre thing. They have the trappings, they have the makings for, uh, you know, the right kind of employee, where does that breakdown occur within an organization as they're picking folks to join their team when presumably, again, the people at the top want these types of people in the organization? And you know what I'm saying? I had that kind of discussion with Cynthia Cooper, who was the whistleblower at, at WorldCom. Yeah. Go back to my very original proposition about interactive compliance and where change comes from. We might like to think that, think that change comes from the corporate world, but it doesn't. It comes from the government. If the government started publicizing cases where they consider compliance programs, and if you saw a decision that said, we decided not to prosecute this company, they had excellent training, they used their incentive system, and in fact, they had hired as an executive a whistleblower from another company, and word got out that when the government's looking at your compliance program, they're really going to be impressed if you hired a whistleblower or you promoted a whistleblower. What do you think might happen? 
Do you think corporate lawyers might saying to their might be saying to their clients, mm, look, if you if you have to deal with the criminal division, um, it's a good idea to have a record of treating whistleblowers well, and maybe even hiring one. Yeah, so, and so I, I think that is a. Um, that's like an external force that can act on an organization to make them effect, you know, make whatever, incentivize them to, you know, treat whistleblowers better. But I'm saying, assuming, you know, we're in a true free market, which we're obviously not, I would just expect that good people should find good jobs. And yet these whistleblowers are usually good people, yet they can't find these jobs. So, and again, assuming that people at the top like that, I mean, maybe they don't, maybe that's where the breakdown is. They, they're viewed as troublemakers or something. I just, it feels like there's some dissonance in this whole thing. Um, there seems like some kind of values mismatch or some kind of uh, desire mismatch between what the ideal sort of candidate is or the, the ideal sort of team player is, somebody who's humble, somebody who's, who's hungry, who's smart, who's gonna you know, live out the company's values and the you know, scarlet letter, again, that whistleblowers seem to have that prevent them from gaining purchase once they've blown a whistle and move on to another com company, I don't. I don't assume that managers are either are senior managers are either necessarily um, rational or that insightful. I mean, after all, um, at one point Apple fired Steve Jobs. Yeah. Um, and so, if someone yeah. is identified as a as a troublemaker, that's going to count. That's going to count more, unfortunately. Um, and it's kind of a comfort level. Senior managers may know that they shouldn't be surrounded by a bunch of people who are saying yes. But when you throw out an idea to a group and everybody says it's a wonderful idea, that feels good. Yeah, you feel like says, a real big shot. You feel smart. Says, you know? Yeah, um, George, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Well, they shouldn't put it that way. But they should say, George, I don't think that'll work. And here's why. The rational mind is going to be saying, wow, that's great. And the normal human being is going to say, um, well, I still think it's a good idea and you don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So we're not econs, we're not 100% we're not rational. There's an emotional element to all of this. And it's part of why, again, talking about having retaliation as one of your risks, you need to train people and remind people on how to deal with folks who speak up and remind them to first just stop. And instead of being angry, just take a deep breath and then say to the person, Thank you. Which is, by the way, it's a fairly established technique on dealing with criticism. Instead of getting mad, you just stop, take a breath, say thank you, recognizing the person didn't have to come to you and give you that feedback. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think there's this sort of, you know, duality, right, of the rational and the emotional and the sort of uh, the logical and the ego piece. Um, and, you know, that knee jerk reaction of, I mean, whose life isn't just full of problems, right? You know, I like to say nobody's on their deathbed and they're like, well, that was easy. Like life's hard for everybody, right? So your day yeah. is packed with a bunch of challenges and then someone's raising their hand and they're bringing a new fire to your, uh, to your feet or to, you know what I'm saying? Um, it's, a, you know, I guess uh, sort of a base level reaction to that is like, here, here it is just one more problem. If we can zoom out of the, you know, temporality of that problem, you can see those sort of good qualities behind them. It's just a very interesting, um, it's, a, it's an interesting interplay. And I, I, you know, perhaps I can say that, that it's interesting because I'm not on like uh, the, uh, the butt end of it, which a lot of whistleblowers end up being. Um, 
and you know some some of them that I've spoken with and you know tell me if you've had the same experience you can tell it's been like a bad thing in their life to have blown the whistle but then if you ask them you know would you do it again they're like I probably would do it again it's that that's kind of an interesting piece as well yes and and I will add though you do not hear the stories of people who raise an issue internally and it worked out well. I remember, for example, getting a call from someone who was very concerned about what his bosses were doing. I gave him some questions to ask some things to do. He called me back later and it was, whew, I checked and it wasn't wrong afterward. They were, doing, they were doing the right thing. That's an example of someone who raised an issue and things came out all right. Um, and I think that happens a lot. We don't hear about it. But the problem organizationally is it only takes one person to raise a question and get knocked down for all the other employees to get the message that they shouldn't do that. Retaliation is, is just a poison for corporate cultures. And the people who raise a question and are satisfied are not the ones who speak up. It's the ones who are retaliated against and suffer who are you're most likely to hear about within the organization. And it just emphasizes to us the need to address retaliation. But just to keep in mind, it isn't that the systems aren't working. No human system is going to be perfect. Right. It's that we have weaknesses that we need to fix. And you know, there's this question in compliance like, oh, why isn't it working? Why are we still having corporate crime? Well, geez, if you have a replacement for human beings, you'll solve the problem. No system has solved this problem. The American justice system did not solve this problem. Throwing people in jail, fining them, even executing them, putting Arthur Anderson out of business, for example, did not stop corporate crime and it never will. Mm -hmm. Compliance can do a better job. It can, it can continue improving, but it will always be a struggle because we're dealing with human beings, but we can do better. There's lots of things we can do better in this field. Are you surprised that, um, so again, it's been a long time since you've written this book. Are you surprised at good or bad, the progress or lack of progress that the profession has made relative to the picture you painted in interactive corporate compliance? Am I surprised? Um, no, I did, I did not expect it to be perfect. I did not expect it to take off. Um, I was surprised initially at the number of people who kind of indicated to me that I was just being silly and none of this was going to happen. Really? Oh, yes, yes. What was that like? I, I, I've learned over time to just keep pushing, even when people tell me something can't happen. I mean, I, I was basically told in, in so many words that nothing was going to change the antitrust division's approach to compliance, which was to ignore them, ignore compliance programs. It's and then so interesting. Ago, yeah, two years ago, they changed. Um, and I had one, I had one Columbia University professor um, who I asked him, gee, what do you think about universities teaching compliance programs? Looked down his nose at me and said, everybody thinks their subject is important and should be taught in law schools. Yikes. So I, well, I, I mean, it's a legit profession at this point. So how is it, how does it not have a place in as, as a course or as a class or as a focus or something? But back in the early days, a lot of people just didn't believe it. And we still find now a disproportionate number in academia who really don't like compliance. I think they were all taught in law school that litigation was the holy grail and the only thing that works. 
Mm. And corporate compliance is about management, and that's not something they teach in law schools. So I've seen among at least some writers a lot of skepticism about compliance, and they're constantly writing about why it failed, why it didn't work. Um, sometimes at universities that themselves have had compliance problems. Um, and I think the expectation needs to be that we're talking management techniques here. They need to be improved. That's going to happen as government takes a more intelligent approach. Um, every failure calls for us to learn from those failures, but we should not expect that this is going to be a, a cure-all. I mean, that's pretty interesting. There's almost a blind spot from the legal side of it all. Uh, I mean, you just kind of described it. Um, do you think, well, you know, what I've noticed is that more and more sort of non-lawyer types are making careers in compliance, at least a greater proportion now than even sort of, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. Um, I think that diversity of thought brings a lot to the table from an effect, uh, you know, from um, to help drive a more effective program in in some cases. Do you think that there's sort of like a legal blind spot, either from the posture of the law school with respect to this focus or the uh, the lack of focus on the people element and the sort of overfocus? Obviously, it's law school, but the overfocus on the legalities of it all, which, you know, obviously the terminus of which is sort of litigation? Well, first, I'll start with the point that systems resist change. The established regime, the established order does not like new ideas. But let me put a caveat about lawyers, because a strength of lawyers is that we're expected to be able to adapt to new situations, right. listen to clients, and learn. And a lot of lawyers I know who are in compliance are strong, not because they're lawyers, but because they learn that skill of mm. listening, learning, and, and adapting. And so I know lawyers who are very good in compliance because they realize this is not a matter of case law. This is not a matter of reading statutes. It doesn't matter if you understand the Sherman Act. What you have to understand is people. Yeah, right. And because lawyers have to learn and, and adapt, there are lawyers who've made that transition. But there are others in the legal system who I think still resent having a new system come about. And you still see lawyers who are very territorial about this. They want compliance under their control because after all, they deal with the law and this is about the law. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that's why you also see in the legal system, um, you'll see resistance to um, compliance programs. You think it's a power thing? And how does this feed into chief ethics and compliance officers need for independence or how does this overlay prevent them from being ineffective when they don't have that independence? Well, you mentioned one of my favorite words in this space, power. I was a, when I was an undergraduate, my focus was political science. It still okay. is. And I deal with the use and abuse of power. The way you control power is with power. And so one of the concepts of interactive corporate compliance was in a corporation where the top leaders have very great power over what happens, the only external source of power that can exercise control over that is the government. And so we're dealing, we're dealing with issues of, of power in this. And it's why the chief ethics and compliance officer needs to have the independence and power and position to stand up. Now, I also want to make a point about these two concepts, independence and power, um, in that 
the ultimate independence is irrelevance. That is, you can be totally independent and they have you in an office a hundred miles away from headquarters and you don't know what's going on. So you need to be connected with what's going on, but you also need to be in a position where the person you're talking to about the need for that person to stop doing what they're doing, that person can't be the person who can fire the compliance person. Yeah. It just it just relates to the use and abuse of power. And if you were in one of these companies, I mean, imagine being the compliance officer in Theranos, which by the way, had no compliance officer, and telling Elizabeth Holmes and her, her male friend um, that they could not in fact do what they were doing, you would have been fired before you could finish the sentence. Right. It can't be effective if you're attempting to police up if you're attempting to control or impact the behavior of those above you. And that's why the compliance officer needs to have a direct connection to the one ultimate source of power in an organization, the highest governing authority, which in publicly traded companies is going to be the board of directors, which is going to have independent directors. So, excuse me. So in your mind, that's, that's the sort of ideal setup. The ideal setup is, uh, to your point, you know, higher up being a power differential at the end of the day. Obviously, the titles are in place, but that's really what we're talking about. You can't police up. So they need that direct line where, you know, this is a broad brushstroke. You're just kind of a guess from your standpoint. But like, where do you think the average pro program is uh, on the continuum of like what you're talking about on one end of the spectrum, sort of as much power and independence and relevance as uh, is reasonable and necessary for compliance officers to do their job, and on the other end, you know, sitting in Siberia in a, you know a desk, right, with no no you know full independence perhaps, but like no kind of effective independence or effective power. Where do you think they are in there, and and what do you think that sort of archetypal um, you know setup? If you if you were able to build a full uh, a full company, you know, kind of stack all those pieces up, what would that what were those lines of power, you know, look like? Okay. Well, I think it varies by industries. I have a feeling, for example, that in some industries like security and banking, the compliance officers are mostly technicians who have no real power. And that's the reason why I think, for example, I mean, anti-money laundering, know your customer, all that type of thing. There've been so many problems in there. I think in some industries, particularly where a company's gotten in trouble, you know, there's nothing that makes a person religious like a near-death experience. And for companies that have been through big trouble and they've dealt with the Department of Justice, their compliance officer may be more fully empowered. Um, and also keeping in mind, there are always ways to improve that. And so, for example, at the SCCE CEI, the point that I covered in my presentation with my friend in Germany was the value of having employment contracts for the compliance officer. Okay. So when it comes to empowering, there's typically more that you can do, but I suspect and this is a point I covered in my Rutgers article, I suspect that failure to have enough power and independence for the compliance officer is a very widespread weakness in compliance programs. What do you think those employment contracts should contain? What, what protections, you know, let's say there's a new compliant, you know, to your point, hey, we need to make, we need to be the change we want to see in the world. We need to take a bunch of baby steps and we'll get up up this mountain. So uh, a compliance officer taking a new job in a new organization, 
what kinds of protections would you prompt them or push them to kind of negotiate for in their employment agreement? Well, I do want to emphasize that Dr. Hausman and I did spend an hour answering that specific question during our program at the CEI. Um, but you would look for you would look for positioning. So be clear the person could not be fired except by the audit committee. You require things like that there be a warning or a written explanation. You could spell out the standard for determining what happens. You would set the positioning. And you know, in any corporation, any organization, appearances matter. Right. So that the compliance officer should be co-located with senior officers. Uh, he or she should be treated like a senior officer. So you cover all of those points. Um, you cover the ability to change the person's position because one way to undercut somebody is to give them a bunch of paperwork and work that they have to do that's not really important, but diverts their attention from the more difficult things. Um, and so the terms and conditions of the employment would be covered in that agreement. The fact that they would have line of sight, it's a term that Donna Bohm uses, line of sight into any operations in the business, access to meetings, being included as a senior manager. Um, I might include the things that they have to report to the board, because I think any board should be saying to its compliance officer, hey, we're in the ice cream business. Is there any problem with health, with um, danger from the ice cream? You must report that to us, which is basically what the Delaware Supreme Court has now told companies. And so I would specify that. So anything that you would want to assure the independence of the compliance officer, empowerment, ability to get the job done, you can put in that contract. Now, like anything severance, else I talk about. Severance, stuff like that. Exactly. And anything else I talk about like this, there isn't a silver bullet. There isn't one thing that's going to make a difference, but each of these things help to build the position. Yeah, that's a good point. There's no silver bullet. Each situation is going to be different. Each organization that you go into is going to have a different sort of posture or uh, receptivity for sort of sharing power with compliance um, and so forth. I'd like to kind of change gears a little bit and talk about, um, you know, a lot of people are talking about this like branding problem, so to speak, that compliance has. And I'd like, what is your thought on that? Do you think it's even a, a thing? If it is a thing, what kind of changes should be made? I mean, is it a marketing thing, quote unquote? Is, a, is it an, an optics thing? What is at the root of this problem and what kind of potential is there if we can sort of get it right in terms of reframing our role in an organization and not just being, you know, the internal affairs or, or whatever? Well, uh, I'll just clarify a point because there, there are two um, planes on which we could be talking about branding. One is the overall field. How do people see compliance officers, for example? Um, if you tell somebody you're a compliance officer, they immediately draw conclusions about what you do. And they just assume any question that you ask a compliance officer, the compliance officer is gonna say, no, you can't do that. Yeah, That's right. kind of the external brand. The internal brand is the brand for the compliance program, including the compliance officer. Okay. And there, that is a delicate issue. I hear too many people saying, you're a team player, you gotta help the team, you gotta add value. Da, 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 da. That's all nice. Everybody in the company does that. Everybody in the company is told you're a team player. What that translates into is go along to get along. Compliance officers should work with the people in the company. But if somebody says, well, if we can't break the law, you tell us what we can do instead. No, that's not our job. No, if you want to break the law, it's not our job to tell you how to do it the right way. 
Right. You should be smart enough to figure that out yourself. When we say you can't do something because it's against the law, it's against the law. You can't do it. Um, so we don't always owe everybody an explanation. But and, and here we're talking about gradation. I'm not saying a compliance officer, only thing you say is no. Yeah, right. What I'm saying is if you have an idea, yeah, go with it, offer that idea, but recognize that unlike other people in the company, you might have to say no. An example I give as a lawyer, if someone comes to me and says, what's the law on price fixing? And can I talk with my, a couple of my competitors about really not pricing too low? And my advice is, no, you can't do that. You can go to jail for 10 years and be subject to a million dollar fine. And the person says, okay, thank you very much. They leave my office. I go out and fix prices. I've done my job. I've given them legal advice. In a company, the compliance officer doesn't do that. The compliance officer doesn't give legal advice, tells them to talk with a lawyer. But if you're a compliance officer and somebody says, well, the lawyers told me I can't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now your job starts. Now you have to make sure the person doesn't do it. Your responsibility is to prevent the crime. It's a far more activist standard. Ah. And this is what worries me about the emphasis on branding and cooperation and team player and going along and working with people. Yes, that has a place. Yes, you want to be perceived as somebody who cares about the company, but you also have to be perceived as somebody who has the guts to say no to the top bosses and survive. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting reframe of it. Um, and, and that's a hard thing. I mean, you can't, I mean, maybe you can't even teach that. I don't know. I mean, do you think you can? I think you can explain to people that, I think people can get a background on the, on organizational dynamics and how group thinking works and um, how people can come around to doing things they wouldn't otherwise do. I think it's useful to have that background for people. Um, and I think getting across the point that no, you're not the office of profit prevention. Um, you know, I think those are fair messages. But I think the other message you make is, look, our reputation is it, boys and girls. This is it. Yeah, if, we right. get, if we get caught breaking the law, the whole value of this company is going to go down. So you might think you're working to improve the profit of the company. But if we do what you're doing, you're, we're going to destroy the company. You know, I mean, we all have heard it, right? It takes a lifetime to build a reputation and a second to ruin it. And I mean, everything in life is just so fragile. You know, a company can fall apart like that. I mean, look at the Activision thing. That's just the most recent example of this crippling thing. Obviously, there was insidious things that sort of perpetuated for years and a culture of, you know, malfeasance effectively that, you know, made a lot of people's lives hell. But that, that whole company is kind of wrecked now uh, from a reputational standpoint. And, you know, I'm sure there were people along the way who were seeing things and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, keeping it under their hat or whatever. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we can make the point that we're there to protect the company and protect the value of the company. Uh, but I'll mention something I observed once in doing a presentation for the Practicing Law Institute, where the audience was primarily lawyers. And I did a survey. I had a list of 10 reasons for having a compliance program in dealing with the Department of Justice, all these different things. And one of the reasons was it's the right thing to do. And in this group of lawyers, it's the right thing to do was their number one choice. Interesting. And so I would say to people, yeah, make the economic arguments, go ahead and do that. But don't be afraid to say, ultimately, this is the right thing to do. We shouldn't, as my friend Pat Nazo used to put it, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat, you shouldn't steal. And that's because, yeah, you might get caught, but the real reason is it's wrong. It's just the wrong thing to do. 
That's pretty interesting, actually. Um, I, I find, uh, and again, broad brushstroke, but I find a lot of folks who are trapped at this kitty table, viewed as a cost center in their organization, these kind of guardian positions, the thing that they have trouble with is sort of proving the ROI of compliance, which, you know, we have a whole bunch of tools to help folks do that, to help make that case. But why do you think people don't lean into that piece of it? That, hey, it's just the right thing to do. If, the, if out of this list of 10, you had all these people in the room and they gravitated more to that, perhaps there's sort of, sort of some error factor where they're just giving the answer that they think you wanted to hear or something, but excluding that, it's probably not, that's probably not hundred percent of the drive yeah. behind it. Like if that's the most compelling one, why do you think people are so scared to incorporate that in their internal persuasion to justify more budget or justify more power in the company? I'm going to come around to a point on why you can't rely on the ROI argument. And people who make that ROI argument do not understand the concept of opportunity cost. Correct. If I go in and say, hey, if we invest a million dollars in compliance, I can give you a, a 5% return. We'll make $50,000. And I'm done. Everybody nods their head. That's nice. The marketing guy comes in and says, if you invest a million dollars in my marketing scheme, we'll make $200,000. So the board votes to make the 200 instead of 50. If you make the economic argument, you set yourself up for that. And marketing is always going to be able to beat you. I have it's a different good. view on that, but but go on. I'll also go back. Yeah, yeah. I think it's good to cover this. For people who are quants, who are numbers people, I think it's good to have the numbers. I think it's good to show the impact on people that comes from getting in trouble. And the same reason I think it's good to do the lawyer's boogeyman. That if you don't do this, the boogeyman will get you. The okay. government will get you. The prosecutor, you'll go to jail. All these yeah, bad yeah. things will happen. But at the end of the day, I would say two things. One is, yeah, make the argument it's the right thing to do. But here's another general point I have for people. I'm often asked, how do you convince the board? How do you convince management? You don't convince collectives. You convince individuals. Oh. You know who are the members of the board. There's 12 members of the board. One of them is a total jerk who doesn't believe in doing the right thing ever. But one of them is really a straight arrow who wants to do the right thing. You start with a straight arrow. If you got a group of 12 people, Try and deal with them one by one. What is their hotspot? One of those people might have worked at a company that got in trouble. One of those, one of those people might be have a family member who's a lawyer. You don't know. And so the way you sell to a group is you don't sell to the group. You talk to the individuals and you find out what their hot button is. And somebody might have sat through a train, a compliance training course that was awful. They hated yeah. it. They hate everything about compliance. If you sit down and talk with that person, you let them vent. And then you show them, oh, God, no, we would never do a training course like that. I hate it just as much as you. You do what a salesperson would do. You talk right. with the individuals, you find out where they're coming from. My advice is if you have a compliance message, never go into a group cold, never go into a group unless you know where the group members are. But you see, my approach is a very, like, it's very practical management oriented approach. It's not theoretical. It's not, gee, why don't boards think this way? It's there's Mary and George and Alan, where's each one of those people coming from? And how do I bring around um, at least seven of them so the board will agree with me? And yeah, I also and know when it comes to groups, I, I'll just finish this off. No, no, go ahead. When it comes to groups, man, the first two people who speak up, odds are they're gonna turn the whole group. You wanna know who's gonna say what before you go into that group. You don't want any surprises. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of talking basic persuasion. I love what you said. We need to approach this like a salesperson would. Um, and I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. 
I think there's a lot of different colors we can paint with. We have a lot of opportunity to make a compelling case to this diverse group of folks who control the purse strings and ultimately control the power in the organization. Uh, treating them like the, you know, a monolith is obviously a losing proposition because you know, it's kind of like treating the entire organization like a monolith when you're just sort of, you know, I'm training to the average. Well, you got these psychopaths on this end and you got the disengaged people on this other end. You have to sort of, you know, you, you have to sing a song that's gonna hit all the harmonies for everybody. Um, but I see a lot of people, uh, so I think there is a more compelling case for the ROI of ethics and compliance that a lot of us don't even bring into the conversation. And I think this case is more compelling now than it ever has been in the past due to the fact, well, I don't know why I think, you know, I have some theories on why, but ultimately um, there's a lot of deadweight loss in our organizations. Uh, that deadweight loss is sort of, you know, from a straight econ perspective is the difference between what I'm paying somebody for. I'm paying somebody to give me hundred percent, you know, this is a full salary uh, and the average level of engagement that I get in uh, from an employee, which across the economy is somewhere around 70%. That implies 70% of the pedal is pushed down versus that hundred percent. So we as businesses, as an economy have grown accustomed to sort of pedaling with tires that are 70% full. And we've grown accustomed to that deadweight loss that's within our organization. So that, again, that's employee engagement. It also shows up in turnover, right? Uh, especially with new generations who care more about integrity. They care more about a purpose that resonates with their own purpose. They care about a mission and making the, you know, and there's a bunch of sort of psychology behind that and sort of life experience of these new generations called the millennials and Gen Zs that, you know, support this position. I think to the extent that, these new generations or people in general care about working in, in a company that's based in integrity, care about an environment that they feel included in where their purpose can overlay, uh, you know, with the, with the organization's purpose and they can make a difference in the world. All of that added value drops directly to the bottom line. And we're so scared to talk about it because it's amorphous and because it's a little bit less tangible and a little bit less objective than, well, I'm mitigating 5% risk and I have this 5% ROI. Of course, of course, marketing, when they come in, they're going to blow us out of the water, but we have an opportunity that marketing doesn't have to actualize and unleash the power and unleash the magic within the workforce by providing a, a working environment that has clear lines of demarcation around, you know, the, the lines of the field and so forth. And we're scared to bring that in to the conversation. But if you can increase, I mean, just, just think about the math of it. If you can increase the level of engagement, three points, two points from 70 to 72, that all falls to the bottom line. If you can reduce and, you know, employee turnover because you have an authentic culture that is actively trying to close that gap between the aspirational culture and the culture that's actually being lived out. If you can drop that, you know, turnover from 12% down to 10%, that all falls to the bottom line. And that's the opportunity that we have. If we can, again, back to you, you know, the book you wrote, the foundation of this thing, if we can start interacting with the human beings in, in the organization, there's so much massive opportunity. And that's just one other you know, color on the palette that we can paint with to paint the picture for the board for more power and so forth. You know, one of the most important skills that you don't really see taught, but that should be, the ability to listen and the ability to listen actively. And the points about the different generations are, are fair and they resonate. Although I would say when I started, your point would have also applied when I started and where sure. I were. People who felt a sense of loyalty to the company worked harder, they did better. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked in the old Bell system where uh, safety and service really were values and they really, it really resonated with people. Um, so I would say now, if you are brought in as a new compliance person, spend some time just talking with people, but make sure you know how to listen. Make sure you know how to engage. People will talk to you um, if you open up and you listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, by the way, I give that same advice, whether you're having a meeting with the board or if you're training. If I was training a group of people, I just had this where I was asked to give a talk to a group, an industry I knew nothing about. I asked for the names of some people in the group. I talked with them, got background. And then when I was able to talk to the group, I could refer to, like, as Sam told me, blah, 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 which showed that I was listening to them. Great. I, that's a critically important person for, point for anyone, and especially for compliance people, to go in and talk with people. Then when you make your pitch to the board or senior management, and then you refer to individuals in the company, I talked with a service rep. I talked with one of your software engineers. Um, I talked with one of your customer service people, and he told me such and such. And I think this reflects the fact that you're not reaching your people. I think that's dynamite because it shows them you've listened. You're not coming in with some outside sense of the company. You've actually gone into the company, talked with people, and learned things about what's happening. And you have insights they don't have. You You have context they don't have. Yeah. I also recalling doing this once for a company for the senior management where I had done a review of the company and I found some really scary documents. Um, And I showed the senior management the documents. It was the quietest I had ever heard a group of human beings in my life. Really? If I had said your company's at risk of this, they would have said, yeah, 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 yeah. But when you show them what's actually going on or you tell them what's going on, you really get their attention. You really have tremendous credibility. So I think to your point, yeah, you can, you can show that you can add value by understanding the workforce and understanding what's going to bring them to fuller connection mm-hmm. uh, with the business, and that will help to make them um, more productive. And by the way, I also think the same people who would report when something, somebody's doing something wrong would also report when some system isn't working right. Correct. And also say, here's a way we could improve performance here. Because if they think you listen to them, they'll talk. If they think you don't listen, they'll just keep quiet. Uh, that's exactly it, that's exactly spot on. And there's just such an opportunity, you know, there's such an opportunity to unlock that potential for crowdsourcing the risk management, crowdsourcing improvements, crowdsourcing ideas uh, on how to reduce risk, on how to improve our operations and our systems and so forth that people are just, to your point, they're just waiting to give it. I mean, what I'm talking about, this loyalty to a company that values them, this is not you know, a new thing that millennials you know, resonate with. People have always cared about this, to your point. Um, it's, it's just, I feels like, it feels like the next chapter or the next mile of opportunity for us to seize. You know, you're very passionate about this, uh, this industry, and you've been involved with it you know, kind of from its onset. At what point did you know that you were in the right spot? Like, at, and what about this industry really resonates with you at such a deep level? For me, it was working in a company with the people who did the day-to-day job of trying to make sure that the company did the right thing. It was, it was working with that. It was seeing that in action, seeing the sincerity of their effort. That was really the inspiration for me. And to this day, it's the inspiration for me. 
um, the most recent book I was involved in, my dedication was to the people who do this day-to-day -day difficult work. Yeah. And those are the people I picture. Um, the ones who are trying to stand up to the, the bosses who are maybe suggesting that, that people should do the wrong thing, that they're trying to make sure the company um, does the right thing. So for me, that's the inspiration is that people who do the day-to-day -day difficult work of this. And you know, when you're working in this field, think of it, if you do a wonderful job, nothing happens, nothing. And that's your sign of success. Nothing happened, nothing bad happened. Um, if things are exciting, it means you didn't do a good job. <laughs> uh, and so I think it's important to, to, to recognize those people and recognize how important that work is and make it, um, make it so they can be as effective as possible. That was really, that was the inspiration for me. That was what impressed me as a young lawyer to see this where realizing the corporations are not thousands of people all focused on making the most money for the company, that yeah. the individuals also had values that they live by. Um, let's hop in the time machine and let's go back in time and find the young Joe Murphy and give him some advice that you wish you had back then. Something you've learned, some nugget of wisdom that you've picked up along the way that, man, I wish I had it back when I was uh, a young guy. What is that piece of advice? I can think of three things. Um, one is to study, study public speaking earlier. I recommend that to anybody and everybody. Study it. Don't assume it's something natural. Study it. Second, I wish I had developed active listening earlier. And third, and a point I also mentioned in the, the book that I did with Kristen and Kirsty, the Compliance Entrepreneur's Handbook, yeah, yeah. is have a or more organized approach to my network. Um, that is, have it more systemized, have a more systemized record. Um, I think that would have been uh, more useful. That, I love that advice. And, you know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about that book. It might be fun to get all three of you on to kind of dive into that book because I love it. Uh, you guys are three folks who have kind of taken this and, you know, tied it up with your entrepreneurial uh, spirit and really made a lot of difference and made a lot of uh, people's lives better, really indirectly, probably more people than you can even imagine just by pushing your thought leadership out to practitioners within organizations that were able to make their workplaces better and make those places safer uh, for folks. So it's really a great uh, book and uh, I'd love to, you know, maybe have you guys on. One last question. I want to be conscious of time. I feel like we could talk for another hour here. What, you know, if we were to fast forward 10 years to 2031, how do you think our profession has changed? What do you think we will have learned? How do you think our role within organizations will have uh, evolved over time? I'm gonna make cover a very focused specific point. And that is the threat to our field that is posed by the emergence of enormously powerful and broad privacy laws. I will confidently predict that those laws are going to be used to undercut compliance in many ways. Mm. In the coming years, we're either going to address this or it's going to make compliance work much more difficult. I would like to think that in 10 years time, we have finally gotten through to the legal system, to the courts, to the legislatures, the need to treat compliance and ethics activity and compliance and ethics programs as positives, as socially beneficial activities 
that should not be punished by the legal system, should not be undercut by the legal system, but should be supported by the legal system. What I see coming is particularly, especially the use of the GDPR, but also the California laws and other laws. It will be used, for example, when you have a real miscreant, when you have an employee who has really done bad things, let's say a manager who's done bad things, and you try to investigate that person, they're immediately going to serve a request for all of their personal information. They're going mm -hmm. to want to have, they want to invoke the right to, the right to be forgotten. They're going to report you to the privacy agencies. If you're in Europe, you might have different privacy agencies investigating you, even though you should only be subject to the one where your headquarters is, but you're going to find out that. You have privacy groups, labor groups coming after you, all using, all using these privacy laws. And managers are going to say, well, Joe, we understand your concern from a compliance perspective, but it doesn't make sense to pay the risk. Why don't we just pay this, this criminal um, a million dollars, get rid of them. It'll be a lot cheaper than having to do this litigation. That's what the privacy laws are going to do unless we do something to revise them so that they make sense. Ah, I've never heard, no one said, no one's taken that angle before. That's actually a pretty good angle. Uh, that's actually a pretty well, scary future. I mean, it's a massive risk for us. You know what I mean? I spent 20 years in-house. I know how organizations work. That is, right. exactly, that is exactly the discussion. The compliance person is going to say, but this person is a crook. They were terrible. They broke all the rules. And the general counsel is going to say, yeah, but it's cheaper for us to get out of this. We cannot put at risk the potential for a fine of 4% of our global turnover. So I know how you feel about this. I'm sympathetic but it's just easier to pay them the money, have them sign an agreement and get this whole thing um, out of the way. Yeah, it just evolves into just a straight dollars and cents economic decision. Exactly. And the privacy laws were just poorly drafted when it comes to this point. They didn't consider it then. They, they didn't consider it under the old regime when privacy regulators first attacked, made these ridiculous attacks against helpline systems. And they're going to do exactly the same thing because they learned nothing from that past experience. So what do we do? Advocate more? I mean, what do we do? We have to stop being quiet. We have to stop being passive. We have to make our voice heard. Yeah. Um, and um, be part of the legislation. And I, I've had some positive experience with working with people in government, helping them understand our position. Uh, but we need, to do, we need to do more. We need to be more active about it. And we need to have a better way to tell our story about what it is we do in this field. And that I've really not seen done. What I can think of is when it comes to whistleblowers, you can think of a story like Erin Brockovich, where you had this heroic whistleblower standing up and speaking. Um, I've never seen a program about a heroic compliance officer. Right. Um, we've not done a good job of, of telling our story. But I think we need to organize. The very first thing we need to do, which we haven't even started to do, is recognize the risk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody should be giving me this answer when I ask them. To your point. Yeah. So, um, Joe, I love your work. I uh, love your heart for this. I love the guidance you've provided, the wisdom, not just obviously in this conversation, but just you know, across the board. You're just very prolific with your writings. You push so much uh, thought leadership out. For people who don't know you, um, where can they find you? Where can they learn more about you? 
what, uh, where can they buy your books? Give us the whole, uh, give us the rundown here. Well, as you mentioned, I'm very active on LinkedIn and I'm happy to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Um, you can reach me by email. Email is the best way to communicate. You know, they have these different terms, baby boomers and millennials. What's better to label people by what their communications means is, I don't like <laughs> phone calls, I don't like texts. I'm in the email generation. Got it. And I'll put, I'll put my email out there. It's jemurphy5730 at gmail.com. That's the easiest way to reach me. But by all means, connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I really like LinkedIn and I use that for quite a bit of communication now. Yeah, I love your articles. I mean, literally everything you write, I'm like, ah, great point. Um, well, anyways, thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time today. Thank you for joining us on the, ex on the Ethics Experts. Until next time. Thanks. Thanks.